Making a recipe that calls for butter? Make it better with European butter from France. With a minimum of 82% butter fat, it's no wonder French butter is the number one choice of chefs the world over. Whether you're whipping up an omelet, sauteing vegetables, or spreading it on toast, the rich, cultured flavor of butter from France always elevates. Be sure to look for Made in France on the label. And for recipes, tips, and tricks, go to tasteeurope.com. You know, when I began the writing process, I was like, well, you know, Israeli books are super hot right now. Maybe people will buy it. I figured, well, who the hell is going to read a book that has like gnocchi and jambalaya and fried chicken and hummus and pita bread and tabbouleh, but then also, you know, like a bacon kugel. You're listening to The Taste Podcast. I'm Editor-in-Chief Matt Rodbard, here with Senior Editor Anna Hiesel. Today we're talking to Alan Shaya, who is the chef behind the restaurants Saba and Softa, and he's also the author of the new cookbook, Shaya. Later on in the episode, we'll be talking to Deb Perlman from Smitten Kitchen, and she'll be answering a question from a reader. But first of all, let's talk about Alan. Alan was, it was like one long story, this, this conversation. It was his life. It was from the mean streets of Philly to the CIA the Culinary Institute of America, that is, to working in uh, a Las Vegas restaurant, to working in New Orleans and opening his restaurant, Shia, and before that, working at Domenica and several other restaurants. It's a compelling story. There's lots of twists and turns. He's an amazing storyteller, and I had a great time getting to know him. Here's Alon talking to Matt, live at Books Are Magic in Brooklyn. Wow. Great crowd here. Wow, you brought him out. Well, I think it was the Bread's Bakery I think it's that the brought Bobka, him out. right? Yeah, the Bobka. But wow, I, I just I was a little late to my prep, so I, I started it this weekend, and I was at my desk today, just like I miss, missed a ton of work, and I read it. I read the whole thing, like being straight up, like I read the memoir portion, and it's probably like a hundred pages. And I just got to say, like this idea of uh, a cookbook plus memoir is always floated around. It's often um, in marketing materials for books, and there are a lot of great books. But I think you, with Shia, have, have have accomplished this. Like we're we know your story by the end of it. So yeah, thank you. Shout out! To um, that. I needed to make that opening statement for sure. And uh, I I would be remiss to not acknowledge Tina Antolini, who is the co-author on the book. Give it up for Tina, everybody. Yeah, Tina, that's you beat me to it because I was going to say you had a partner in this. I know you are a chef and not a full board journalist and Tina you did such a remarkable job like threading a lot of ideas together you have turns a lot out of... that all my R's were backwards until <laughs> Tina came on board and she helped with that um, but I think it's a little misleading on the cover when it's like my journey back to Israel which is obviously part of what you stand for and what Shia your restaurant in New Orleans and a lot of the food that you're going to be opening to more restaurants but really this is a book I mean just looking at the recipes there's kibbeh and there's Break green falafel and Hungarian paprikash, of course. There's berekes, but there's also tortellini. There's spanakopita. There's gnocchi. There's sous vide turkey. There's the 1990s Caesar salad. Yeah. I knew what I wanted the book to be when I began the writing process, but I didn't quite understand how it was all going to affect my life and kind of help me realize. uh, I, I felt like I really realized why I was writing the book about halfway through into writing the book. And, you know, it's really comes down to, I've had this journey in life that has brought me as an immigrant child from Israel to Philadelphia at the age of four. 
Um, I had a really rough childhood, but I really discovered food at a very young age um, because of a lot of factors in my life, my grandparents and my mother. Um, and I really went through this entire, my entire life kind of trying to figure out what my identity should be because I, at, at a very young age, when I came to America, I was, you know, I didn't speak any English. I was in this kind of new land. How old were you when you came to America? I was four. Yeah. So I worked so hard on trying to erase where I came from and assimilate into American culture, and I wanted to be the same as everybody else. And and that started at the age of, of four, really, and it only kind of continued to progress as I got older. Like, the older you get, the more conscious you are of if you look different, if you sound different, if your food is different that you're bringing to school... My uh, sister was five years older than I was, and she was able to kind of handle it better. But for me, it was really important for me to forget about the past and focus on the future. And, you know, the book is kind of this culinary memoir, which takes me, which which takes you through this entire process of kind of trying to erase your identity from from a young age. And even into my teenage years and my young adulthood, like trying to find my place trying to figure out how I should talk, how my name should be pronounced. Uh, I learned English from watching Sesame Street. And so I had like the Cookie Monsters accent for like three (laughs) years. And so I was even more awkward. And, uh, you know, and and then eventually I I kind of learned that um, I need to celebrate my heritage. And, and, And that's kind of where this journey back to Israel it, that's why it's called my journey back to Israel because it really took me my entire life to kind of go through that cycle and and eventually figure out what was important. Let's start there. I think that for the sake of this conversation, I've I kind of marked a few beats in your life, and I wanted to I kind of take us on like a bit of a chronological journey. So I want I mean, you, your life in Philly as a kid was rough and it was tough and you ended up in a home economics class and Donna uh, Barnett is your home ec teacher. And I was really struck by, uh, we often talk about like mentors being in culinary school or chefs that you work with, but you're, you're shouting out a home economics teacher in high school. So tell me about her a little bit. Tell the audience, like, I want to hear about what she taught you. For sure. So because when we immigrated to America, I was, I was four years old. And my father had come to America a couple years earlier than my mother and my sister and I did just to save up enough money to um, buy the plane tickets. And so he came here starting from scratch. And so here I was between the ages of two to four um, with no father figure. I came to America and by the age of five, my mother had left my father because he uh, wasn't treating her very well. Then my mom was working two two jobs just trying to keep a roof over our heads. And so I was kind of home alone from a very young age. And um, I spent many uh, days by myself, age five, six, seven years old, just kind of fending for myself, And um, which, which meant that I had a lot of time to get into trouble and figure out really creative ways to get into trouble. And you really do. I mean, you, you like you're an AC, you're like you're getting drunk as a 16 year old. You're like driving cars and parking lots of grocery stores into other cars. That's probably later in life. You're very creative with your Yeah, I wasn't doing that at five, okay. but <laughs> right. I'm moving along the narrative a little. Yeah. Bit. Yeah. Uh, but but like, at, at, you know, um, 
there there was a lot of time to myself where I I didn't have much guidance and you know my um grandparents would come and visit from Israel and there was a, a moment where I came home from school and I opened the front door to my house and um my grandparents were visiting and my grandmother was roasting peppers and eggplants over over this open fire and that smell really kind of like hit me like all at once. And it wasn't so much that I smelled lunch being cooked. It was more that I knew that all of a sudden things would be normal again because those smells reminded me of Israel and reminded me of being home and reminded me of family and kind of togetherness. And so I really kind of connected that smell I feel like that's when I fell in love with food like at the age of seven when I smelled those peppers and eggplants roasting because I I knew that things would be normal for a while and when they weren't in town we couldn't afford to go out we couldn't afford to go out for ice cream or Chinese food or anything like that and when they were here it was like it was it was fun and they would bring me chocolates and like they would have their suitcases filled with all these like Israeli you know chocolates and candy bars and stuff so um when they would leave, it was like being alone again. And um, I even had to change the pronunciation of my name because uh, in Hebrew, like the way my mother says my name is Alon, but when everybody in America would say that it was it was pronounced alone. So it was like even making me feel worse than I already was. Yeah. So uh, I changed my name to Alon, like a lawnmower. And that's what I would tell everybody. And that's how I would get them to pronounce it the right way. So the this whole notion of like um, being alone, getting into trouble, really like lasted for many, many years to the point where uh, I was selling drugs, I was shoplifting, I was getting arrested, I was getting into fights, I was beating people up, I was getting beaten you, you up. You beat up, you talk about really um, a striking moment is like as a, you were beating up like a homeless man with all your pack of friends like, and you, you knew it was wrong but you, it was like you did it anyways. And yeah, we were, you're we being were very like, honest in this, te- in this memoir. Sure. Yeah, and yeah, it's cool. And, and um, because it, it was like I was surrounding myself with people that also were fighting life in one way or another and we were kind of like perpetuating each other's anger just from being together. And, you know, as I continued to get older and the consequences became a little bit more and more real, um, I, you know, I didn't stop getting in trouble. I I allowed those kind, I, I just never had to really face those consequences because there was no one there to really, I mean, other than the police arresting me every once in a while, there was no one really there to like tell me what was right and wrong. When I met Donna Barnett, it was when I joined her home economics class in high school. And I joined the class really so that I could, you know, have hang out with girls and knives. And to me, that sounded like fun. And I would end up like getting kicked out of math class or history or English. And eventually the like the teachers wouldn't even put me in detention or suspend me anymore um, because Donna had worked out a deal with the principal of the high school to say if I ever got kicked out of class that they would just send me to her classroom. And I would show up to her classroom and she'd have a big p- pile of onions there and she'd hand me a knife. Knife skills she'd, improved. She'd tell me to slice all the onions. And uh, and then she'd be like, okay, what the hell did you do now? Like, what the fuck? Why, why, why are you doing this? And I 
would open up to her. And she was really one of the only adult figures in my life that I really felt comfortable talking with. And she saw that I had a passion for food and that I had a talent and that I was worth more than what everybody else was giving me credit for. And she uh, helped me eventually get into culinary school. She got me my first job yeah, at a restaurant. Job. When you were in high school, you would, yeah. you would attend school and then you would go and work with all these adults, right? Yeah. Yeah. So like at the age of 16, I started working in restaurants and I found time like on the weekends to still screw things up. But during the week, like when I was around food, I was focused and I was kind of staying off the streets and I was, I felt like I was part of something a little bit bigger than I had felt before. Um, and that eventually led me to go to culinary school. Well, the Caesar salad came in there. Like the Caesar salad recipe is from your high yeah, school era. Yeah, yeah. So that, as the book is kind of broken down into these short stories, there are there are moments in my life where, um, you know, I have these memories of food and and I write this this story about working in my first restaurant where I really kind of understood that I wanted to become a chef and that I had uh, all of a sudden this goal because I never had kind of considered college before that. So Donna really kind of helped set that path for me. And you found yourself at the CIA. So you're the yeah. Culinary Institute of America, the Harvard of cooking schools. You you worked on scholarships. You got You got there. You got there. Um, and I and I think we we could talk a lot about the CA, but I really want to get there's so much of your story that I want to get to. But like starting the 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 Jewish Food Society there, the first I'm paraphrasing it. Yeah. And so, what was the dish that you wanted to serve at the first? What did you? Yeah, so it was a it was kind of like a situation like this. We I, when I, when I first came to the CIA was really the first time that I had um, made any like true friends, like people that I could like sit around and like talk about my feelings with. And I made a couple friends who happened to be Jewish, and we decided to open up the Jewish Culture Club at the CIA. And I felt like that would be a great way to kind of like reconnect with my Judaism. And so we started this Jewish Culture Club, and we get a uh, you know we put up all these flyers everywhere, and all of a sudden like everybody comes to this meeting and there's like 20 people there or so and i get up and i start talking and i'm like hey look we can start this club and we can get the cia to like pay more attention to like jewish culture and like people should be making matzo balls here and like what the hell and i was like and then like we can throw a big party and and then we'll like roast a whole pig and everybody will come and have a great time and like three people like got up and walked out like right when i said that and I was like, you know, I, to me, like pigs were fine. It was just food. And but everybody was like, that's not Jewish food. I, I really began to kind of like be interested in more of what it was all about. And it was because I kind of had this fresh start and this new opportunity to um, to kind of learn more about myself at the time. So to, to not spoil the, the narrative, you, you do your externship in Las Vegas, you go to St. Louis, and then you end up in New Orleans. I'm fast forwarding for the sake of time. You end up in New Orleans and you're working at the Casino Harris in New Orleans. Or... Yeah. So you're there, you're like, you're, you're 23, 24, and you have like a couple hundred people under you. Yeah. So what are you thinking then? Like, are you, what, what's going through your mind? Like as a chef, as a human being, you've got like 200 people under you and you're super young and you're being asked to be the boss. Dollar signs. Uh, I was chasing the paycheck. And it, for me, it was like, I could make more money, but I could also move to New Orleans, which was really important for me to do because I always had this love affair for New Orleans. At that point, 
thinking like, how do I invent the next best dish? How do I create something that everyone is going to go crazy for? And it's going to like make me, you know, famous. And all I can do is just like have this great, like arugula puree recipe and, and I can retire. And, uh, and of course I learned that, um, it wasn't that easy and hurricane Katrina hit, um, in 2005. And at that moment I, kind of was able to kind of step take a step back well i came back to new orleans right after the storm just a couple days after the storm and cooked red beans and rice um in a parking lot for first responders and people that were being rescued from the roofs of their houses and people that were uh rescuing people from their their homes and and uh made red beans in the parking lot for everybody and at that moment I kind of understood that I had been chasing the paycheck, that I had been kind of pushing myself too fast, that I wasn't quite absorbing um, what I needed to as a cook and as like from from a craft standpoint. Um, and Katrina was what uh, made me realize that I needed to move to Italy. And then you get to Italy, and I was going to say that's a big moment in your life. That's really how you uh, you, you kind of crystallized your where, which would eventually become your reputation as one of America's top Italian chefs. And to talk about a little bit of that, and then the second part of it is I want to hear about your epiphany that with pizza, but also that Italy and Israel have so much in common, which yeah. I think is such a cool part of your story. Yeah, so I moved to Italy. And um, the first place that I go is in Bergamo. And it's like northern Italy. And there's two young brothers that are running this restaurant, Antonio and Francesco. And so they were like these guys in their like late 20s. They were managing this restaurant. One was managing the dining room. Francesco was in the dining room and Antonio was in the kitchen. And they were at each other's throats all the time. They would scream at each other and throw things at each other. And I felt like I was back in like the apartment when I was five years old again and my parents were fighting. And I would like, I felt like I wanted to go in the corner and just start to cry. And I was there and I was learning the language and I was still like on my days off. I was going into into town and eating at restaurants and shopping in the market. So there was this kind of like very beautiful experience um, that I've been waiting so long to get to, but then it would turn into this like very abusive relationship when I would go back to the restaurant. And but you got yourself out of that situation. I eventually and was able to move to Parma, Parma, Emilia Romagna. Really, like well, the the way that that happened is really interesting because um, they wouldn't really let me like interact with the food much, other than peel shrimp and and mop the floor. So uh, we were catering this party and there was this huge like salami display that they had set up and i um i looked at the salami and i was like wow that looks like really tasty salami and i went to go eat a piece and like they shooed me away from it and they were like get away from the salami like get back in the kitchen and i was like villains okay. again villains and when they weren't looking i went and got a piece of salami and i also was able to grab the tag from the salami and i thought it was the best salami i ever had in my life and so i had this tag with the name of the company that made the salami and i went back to my room above the restaurant and uh with the help of the roommate we uh sent this email to the contact information on this salami company and he helped me translate it. And I said, this is the best salami I ever had. I want to come and learn how to make it. I'll work for free. I just need a place to sleep, preferably 
a pillow. Yeah, right. And <laughs> it'd be. And could you? The mattress thicker than four inches. Would, or, yeah. would you mind if I did that? And um, they emailed back and said, "Come down and we'll meet you." And I was able to, after uh, some some pretty crazy events, I was able to get down there and meet them. And eventually, I went down there and started working with them. And they became like family to me. They came to my wedding. They. You know, we stay in touch. There's a whole chapter in the book about uh, my guardian angel, Eddie, and uh, and how they finally I had this kind of like Italian grandmother figure that was there for me in Italy, um, which was what I was kind of expecting from the beginning, but it wasn't reality. So back in New Orleans, I think we should go there. I think that's probably the next beat. I mean, you, you had this epiphany with pizza. Oh, the question about Israel. So you're like making these connections, right? You're making these like from your childhood about what, you know, going to the markets in Israel and going to the markets in yeah. Emilia Romagna. So what kind of like for the for the question is like, what are you drawing? What what are you seeing at both of these markets? What, what similarities are you drawing? Well, it, it was a little more complicated than that. I, I moved back to New Orleans. I opened Dominica and I was cooking Israel. I mean, cooking Italian food. Um, now for a couple of years and then claimed, I mean, you're winning awards for this Italian food. I mean, let's not understate that. Yeah. I mean, it was like, going, it was going, going really well. well. And, and, be, and because of, because of that, like my confidence was building as a chef and, uh, you know, the time that I spent in Italy was really paying off because I was able to translate that experience into the, the New Orleans market. And, um, in 2011, I took a trip to Israel um, and at this time, like this is my first trip back to Israel since Katrina, since living in Italy, since kind of like all of these epiphanies that I've had in, in life that like were hitting me like a ton of bricks. And so I'm in Israel in 2011 and I'm walking through the markets and I smell those peppers and eggplants again. And I smell like the spices in the market and I hear these old ladies speaking Hebrew and it like took me back to that seven-year-old me and but this time I thought to myself like this is kind of who I am and this is something I, I should maybe try to do I came back after that trip and I started sneaking Israeli food into the menu at Dominica so I would make like a chechi puree you know which is like hummus and I I was putting za'atar on like pizza crust and tahini in the lamb bolognese yeah, I was. What like, that sounds really good. It was super tasty. Yeah, dude. Um, nice job. That's good. Yeah, and so all of these things that I came back from Israel inspired by, people were really liking. Um, the whole roasted cauliflower that we put on the menu at Dominica like became had this cult following, and that was something like straight out of a trip to Israel that really inspired me. So that Miznon, was that before Miznon? It was before Miznon, but yeah. it's the same chef, and he had a rest. He has a restaurant called Abraxas in in Tel Aviv, and I had this whole roasted cauliflower there, and uh, it was mind blowing. And so I came back to New Orleans and kind of did my version of it in the in the pizza oven, and did like a whipped goat feta to be served. I have with one it. question about that dish because the recipe was really interesting. You boil in 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 white wine and olive oil and butter and 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 water yeah. and salt and you yeah. boil for like seven and then you flip at eight or something. Yeah, you just like simmer it in this broth. So what's up with this broth? Because I'm really curious. Like that broth sounds awesome, but like it's not what I would expect for this dish. 
Yeah, well, that's that's well, that's the recipe, though. You know, <laughs> you put some chili flakes in there, yeah, right? And a little sugar. What, and what did that do to the cauliflower? I mean, you've got well, it cooks it, yeah. and uh, you you cook it in this broth, and it gives it all this flavor, and it gets really tender, and then um, you pull it out of the broth, and then you roast it in the wood burning oven or in your home oven. Um, five hundred's cool. Five hundred yeah, broil. Five hundred yeah. degrees, and then you turn the broiler on, and it gets like really nice and charred on top. And uh, you like everybody was loving the cauliflower, and and that kind of showed me that I could cook this food, and I didn't I didn't have to like hide it as much anymore. So um, after a couple more trips back to Israel and more israeli food being snuck on the menu at dominica i realized that i needed to open an israeli restaurant and that leads you to the reluctant israeli chef right you're like the reluctant because you were sneaking and were you mostly getting positive feedback from those dishes those kind of fusiony dishes you could say well yeah the 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 fusiony and reluctancy was all really at dominica and then when i opened Shia, it was really kind of a true expression of of who I was, and it was me being really proud of who I was. And after all of these years of of trying to hide it and trying to push it away and trying to cover it up and 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 put makeup on it, I was finally able to to sing it from the mountaintops. Whenever I told somebody I was opening an Israeli restaurant in New Orleans, they kind of looked at me like I was crazy because they were like, "Who the hell's going to eat there?" And they're like, what's that? Matzo ball soup? And and I'd be like, um, yeah, it is. But there's also like a lot of other things happening. And uh, but but I had already kind of built this um, trust with the community through Dominica, through several years of being the chef at Dominica and people there kind of already knew, you know, who I was. And I did a lot of events um, throughout the community and kind of really did a lot of, um, you know, volunteer and charity work. So the i i felt like a great relationship with the community by that point and i felt that if i was ever going to kind of like finally express myself that i could do it with opening shia and i did and it worked she gets wild at that point right she gets wild like you win the james beard award twice is that right with shia i mean you you not only sold a lot of those cauliflower heads but you also just gained this like trust from the community that you were cooking like really fucking good food so i mean when you're and we're not going to talk about shot because you're you've got new projects you're working on but like tell me are you are you thinking like this is the end of this story or what's what's going through your head like after you've won all these awards like what do you want to do well shia was getting all of these accolades and there was so much happening there was so many people kind of starting to pay attention to it that um you know i i knew the whole time that it wasn't really sustainable and i knew that uh even though the restaurant was doing really well, I internally was um, not fulfilled. And I I found some of the, you know, I, you would think that during all this time that I would be like very happy all the time. But the truth is, is that I wasn't. And uh, I knew that there was a lot of things that in my life that were um, missing. And, uh, you know, the the business partners that I had, at Shia, I really felt like I was outgrowing and that I, I we didn't really connect from a um, value standpoint. And then there was kind of like this whole network of people around them that were kind of pressuring me into um, just kind of being quiet and putting up with it. And it 
didn't feel right. And eventually the, the pot boiled over and, uh, you know, I had to leave Shia. And, you know, even though that all of my life had been kind of working up to this moment, it's a journey and it doesn't end and I'm still alive. So it continues. That's and, one way to put and it. And I think that alive. everybody in their life um, faces these moments of adversity and they have to uh, use those moments as opportunities to grow. And, um, you know, that continues and I'm still doing that. So you got the book, but you've got Saba and Softa, two new restaurants that you're opening. I'm not, I want to hear about those. I'm going to ask some questions. I have a few more questions. So, yes, I started Pomegranate Hospitality, which is our... our Great our, name. Wow. What a gr- like Pomegranate Hospitality. Like, yeah. really hits it on the head what you're doing. Yeah, pomegranates all have 613 seeds, and each one of those seeds represents the, uh, the commandments of the Torah. And so, um, again, I'm not like preaching religion. I just think it's really beautifully symbolic. Um, But I I think that as our company is called Pomegranate, that we're kind of this fruit that's filled with all of these good things that eventually can blossom if it's treated right. And uh, we are opening two restaurants. We're opening Saba in New Orleans at the end of April. And we're opening Safta in Denver um, in June. And our, our entire... And what those words mean to those who may not know. Yeah, Saba means grandfather and Safta means grandmother. So the first two restaurants of Pomegranate will kind of serve as like the grandparents of the company. We're putting all of our focus over the last six months. We've had our entire Pomegranate team working out of my living room, working on how to build the next restaurant, but this time really make it sustainable. Um, and so we've built... Uh, we have nine values that we've come up with as a team, and those include uh, respect and accountability and empowerment and communication and education and passion and creativity. And those values will serve as the DNA of our company, and they really permeate through every single thing that we do from recruitment to training to training of managers to evaluations which we're lacks in do. the industry like this kind of like mission statement lacks like a lot of a lot of these companies that have existed and gotten into trouble have not made this like declaration that you're making right now in front of a public space why not well why aren't, um why aren't people doing why aren't more restaurateurs doing this i can't answer for everybody else I, and, I, and i know that like as you read the book you'll see that everything that i do has been because of something that's happened and it's uh, it's a moment where I've taken the platform to improve and to learn more and to um, continue to make a bigger impact. And so w- as a company, we've come together and we've made these promises to each other. And our goal now is to live up to these promises and and really let these values hold us all to a standard um, that we can work together on making uh, our restaurant a great place to work Alon Shaya, thank you so much for, for, for doing this. Thank Appreciate you. It. Thank be... you guys all so much for coming. Yeah. Awesome crowd. So honored to have you guys all here. Up next, Deb Perlman from Smitten Kitchen answers a question from a reader. So we're here in New York City at Deb Perlman's apartment. Deb, thanks for having us over. We have a reader question. So what was a uh, cookbook that inspired you early on in your in your life, in your career, or is there a book that you read from cover to cover? Um, definitely, you know, growing up, 
our three big cookbooks were my mom had actually taught herself to cook from mastering the art of French cooking. So a little bit like of a core of Julia Child. And then from there, um, we did a lot of joy of cooking. And but the one I remember the most, because it's like so of the time and place was the silver palette cookbook. And we definitely I somehow I somewhere here I have my mom's dog eared copy of it. Um, I don't even think we cooked from it every week nearly as much as other people did. But I feel like it was the style of cooking that my mom and I liked a lot where it was like a little bit more. It was like the post French European yeah. well, influence. Well, two Upper West Side New Yorkers yeah. cooking out of a smaller space. It, it they reminds had a me of the catering company. They owned a catering company, and then they were talking about cooking in a city kitchen. Sounds familiar. <laughs> Sounds like a little. Oh, familiar. I see what you did there. <laughs> see what That's I did there. <laughs> funny. Um, you know, I think it was like yeah. So they were sort of blending influences. It wasn't strictly like you know Italian or French. It wasn't you know like I mean Julia Child's view was she was bringing French cooking to America you know in the 50s you had a lot of like modern science processed foods and like anyway so you have a lot of a lot of different things going on and I feel like it was just very of the moment where it was like a little bit of a medley of influences where it's a little bit Italian and a little bit French and just a little bit like ingredients like um pesto and um tapenades and stuff like that pesto was so foreign in like 1984 exactly but they were starting to become available and i guess it's sort of i don't know like how it aligns with the advent of like dean and deluca but like these specialty food stores that were starting to pop up where all of a sudden these ingredients were getting really popular and people were getting really into cooking with roasted garlic and um, roasted red pepper spreads and and they were using a lot of that stuff. You remember and, going to see these specialty stores when you were growing up? Like, oh yeah, my mom and I loved them. We would buy like arugula and you know artichoke, you know tapenades and like definitely like fancy cool things that were just sort of newer. So let me ask you, what do you look for in a cookbook? Like what are the mm. like attributes or characteristics of a cookbook that you have on your nightstand that you're maybe reading more so than cooking from or on the on the flip side that you're cooking a lot from? What do you look for in a cookbook? How long do you have? I know. It's <laughs> true. We could be here all day. Um, so I, for me, there's like, I would say there's probably two categories of cookbooks. I love like a good, thick Persian cookbook or like, you know, vegetarian Indian cookbook. Like I like something that's almost like a little bit of a textbook and, you know, that'll tell me about the place and the time and the history of the foods that you really dig into. These are like reference like books Bible, for me. Yeah, well, I guess that's sort of like there's like very reference books. And then there's sort of ones that are almost more like travel books with recipes. And so that would be like probably category two. Mm-hmm. And then the third one is more like, this is something I could see myself making right now. You know, I could like where I'm getting like actual, like I'm low on inspiration. Show me something cool to do with asparagus. What's one that you just opened recently? Literally this week. I was, I mean, I've actually had it for a year, but I've been almost overwhelmed with how much I've wanted to cook from the Six Seasons cookbook, which of course is just everyone's fussing over it. Because I mean, there's like 250 recipes in there and they're all vegetables and it's like, so much good stuff and I had asparagus and I was like what should I do with it and he has this thing it's with walnuts and breadcrumbs and lemon zest and parmesan and pepper flakes and it was just so good well thanks a lot appreciate it the taste podcast is hosted by Anna Hiesel and myself Matt Rodbard it is produced by Gabrielle Lewis our theme music is by Steve Rydell Interviews are recorded live at Books Are Magic in Cobble Hill, Brooklyn. Special thanks to Books Are Magic fan Emma, Michael, and Mike. Confidence wine supplied by Smith & Vine. Visit Taste Online at tastecooking.com. Tune in next week.